Gahan Wilson is a cartoonist of the uh, New Yorker quite regularly. Many of his cartoons have to do with uh, people meditating, monks meditating in different circumstances. So there's one that I particularly like that uh, shows a row, uh, looks very much like a zendo. It's a raised platform very much like this. And there are uh, monks sitting all down the platform at regular intervals on Zabutans and Zapus, just as we are, and sitting very uh, strong and tall and erect in a very Zen way. And uh, one of them, however, is uh, in robes, of course, and one of them is uh, leaning forward and hunched over a little bit and uh, cradling in his hands a cell phone into which he is speaking. <laughs> and he's saying, uh, I don't think any of this is doing me any good. <laughs> and I think, actually, the reason that it's so funny is the cell phone. You know, it, it's, uh, uh, it really is so poignant that it, it, it clearly he's so uncomfortable that he cannot wait until he's in the privacy of his own room or at least out for a walk. In the middle of the zendo, he has to let someone know about his discomfort. It wouldn't be funny at all if it were a thought bubble over his head. It'd be a perfectly presentable thought bubble. I'm sure it's gone through everybody's head here about I, you know, everybody's mind here. If it were a thought bubble up there, okay, doubt has arisen, but the uh, imperative of that is what makes it touching and therefore funny. It tickles us. You know, when that uh, person went on that Zen retreat, he had an idea that something would happen. He wanted to feel better. Everybody came here because they had a goal in mind. They wanted to feel better. Otherwise, this is way too hard. Nobody does this as a vacation activity. <laughs> And sometimes I think we say things that sound paradoxical. Uh, we say, here are the instructions, and we give instructions very carefully. And then we say, the mind does the work of unfolding all by itself. <laughs> and then we say, make great and continuous effort. And then we say, rest in natural great peace. <laughs> and then we talk about deepening concentration, which obviously takes time, because something's going to deepen. It's an event that happens over time. And we get inspired by the idea of deepening uh, concentration or cultivating qualities, also happens over time, or purifying the heart. I was very moved by Guy's description the other morning in the, uh, his response about karma of continuing mind streams. I could, I could visualize them in my mind that, uh, of course, they, they concretize them in a way that they aren't concrete, but I was seeing them as transatlantic cables somehow, all coiled, different uh, mind streams moving along, individual mind streams, and yet interrelated, uh, part, each of them part of the whole, and yet an individual with an integrity, certain integrity of its own, but also always changing. And the idea, I just with that image, had such a sense of the, uh, the idea of the end of suffering as the end of ongoingness, the end of further rebirth into yet another moment of suffering. That happening with the recognition that there is no house builder Thus being free from the incessant busyness of responding to the needs of a non-existent owner of this karmic package. Just thought that was such a moment of seeing, just in that sort of uh, see-through transatlantic cable that came up in my mind. But we also talk, uh, in addition to the talking about freedom through Wisdom, we talk about the end of suffering through the conversion of the heart, also which takes place over time. The conversion of the heart from its habits of self-cherishing to the habit of other-cherishing. Through repeated experiences, really, of the pleasure, of the joy of relating to someone else, the relief of relating to somebody else. First of all, the relief from one's own incessant story of incessant need, 
and also the consolation of being a minister to suffering. It's confusing. We say make effort over time and then time is a construct. Or (laughs) suffering is endless and I vow to end it. I think the one thing that is part of everything that we have all said, because I think they are all sayable in the same place and with the same intention, is that they all come out of the understanding and the faith that peace is possible, that really peace is possible in this very life, in this very body, right now, moment to moment. The Buddha said, I come to teach just one thing, come to teach about suffering and the end of suffering. I was thinking this morning, in fact, that using the vocabulary of the non-dual, encouraging, as it does, a radical shift in perception is its own path of practice, just as purifying the habits of the mind over time through sila, through virtue practice, is its own path. Dedication to morality as the path of practice as a way of arriving at the same insights of anicca, dukkha, anatta that we hope to arrive at here in this particular form of cultivation of mind, this particular way in which we're practicing now. This is a practice, sila practice is a path to the goal. Understanding wisdom practice is a path to the goal. So I want to go back to the image of the monk. I don't think this is doing me any good. And my sense that he isn't feeling any better, or he's not feeling any better yet. And I thought I'd talk a little bit about feeling better, and uh, how at this point in the retreat, you might or might not be feeling better. And the various ways in which this form of practice that we're doing together, people moving along, each one on a completely idiosyncratic path towards feeling better. You know, I think to myself sometimes when, much as I, I, I'm thrilled by uh, uh, an, a sense of the absolute and uh, the, uh, the wonderful poetic language of the absolute, that fundamentally, whether or not there is a self, or there isn't a self, or there is a soul, or there isn't a soul, there is suffering. And there is the absence of suffering. And there is peace. And I think that we're all hoping for peace. We're wishing for peace. I think what we are doing here is one continual practice of praying for peace the continual prayer for peace that we do, whether or not we are saying metaphrases, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, or we are returning moment to moment through careful attention, our attention to a moment of balance from all of its challenges, of all of the hindrances continually arising. Either way, we are praying for peace with a faith that it could happen doesn't need to be personal, you know, it doesn't matter is there someone who is praying. It doesn't have to belong to someone, this awareness of suffering. And I think actually that uh, each of our personal stories, with our personal stories of suffering, somehow intersect that juncture of the suffering that's fundamental to experience in form. I think actually our own personal stories, our own personal experiences of suffering and the end of suffering connect with, connect us to that awareness of suffering. It's awareness of our own pain that connects us to the pain of the world and gives rise really to the desire for the relief of our own pain and when it's relieved, to feel the desire for the relief of the pain of the world. You could think about as compassion. I don't think compassion develops in a vacuum. Don't think that we become kind vicariously because we think it's a good idea. I think it arises out of our experiences of suffering.
You know, when we say things like, uh, may I be peaceful, or may you be peaceful, may suffering end, we really are saying, may peace prevail. My first impression, actually, when I went on my first long retreat, was how prayerful this was. People really um, sitting and walking, day after day, ardent. I remembered uh, reading the, um, the book of the Christian mystic, the uh, way of the pilgrim, and the instruction that he had been given by his teacher, pray without ceasing. And I thought to myself, in this quiet way, with a liturgy of nothing at all, we are praying without ceasing. It's an extraordinary liturgy, liturgy of silence. You know, I think that we all really hope so much for peace in the world and that it comes through our own experience with wanting our own peace. There's a video, uh, actually it's a video now, it was a movie called The Miscongeniality. Did you see it? It's actually, it's very sweet and I think more profound than maybe people notice uh, because it's um, it's about a beauty pageant and about all the pomp and preparations and primping that go into it and uh, whatever you might think about beauty pageants it really is uh, it's it's really seeing through that pomp and primping and all of it to the emptiness of it fundamentally but the the, the line that moved me tremendously was you may know from seeing beauty contests that you have to you have various aspects of the contest how you look and how you walk and what, what talent you do, whether you play the piano or the clarinet or tap dance. And then finally, every, every one of the finalists gets to have uh, a few minutes of a personal um, interview on camera for the judges to judge their um, rightness for being crowned Miss Congeniality. And uh, the answer that all of the contestants are primed to give when they're asked, what do you wish for most in the world, is world peace. So they do that one after another. And then one of the contestants, this particular maverick contestant, who's the hero of the whole movie, really, when it comes her turn and they say, what do you wish for most in the world, she says what she wishes for most in the world, which is something in her personal life. I don't actually remember what it is, but the end of some particular thing with which she is struggling with. So she makes her own wish, whether it's a relationship or whatever it was, but she makes her own wish. And she looks around and the audience is stunned. You know, and, and she catches it that the audience is stunned and then she says, and world peace. <laughs> so in fact, I think that's how it is with us, that we all want world peace. If we get some, if some magic thing came and said you get one wish Probably all of us, hands down, we wish for peace in the world right now, equitable sharing of resources, all those right things that we wish for. Then if that same wish granter were to say, now you get one thing and it has to do with your personal life, no more giving it away, we've all got one thing right online. We wouldn't have to think a long time about what we want for ourselves. It's our our experience of wanting, I think, that really inclines our hearts to compassion. So we've been here for a while now, all of us. Um, some people a week, some people three weeks. And everybody is doing something. Everybody's in a different place. It's extraordinary and a great honor to sit with you as you come one after another and share the process of your hearts. I, I, you know, I, I thank you. I know we all do. And I think it's very good that we don't talk to each other and that nobody knows what anybody else is doing. It's, you know, really... It's complicated enough that we all see each other because we make up stories about other people and say, whoa, that person's sitting there in peace and bliss and I'm struggling. I can see that that person is in peace and bliss. So I can see that that person is struggling and now I'm all preoccupied with thinking about them. And, and actually, we don't know anything about people. We just know that person is sitting with a certain demeanor about them. And but I think all of us, if we're in a place for one 
particular period of time of peace is we're hoping to establish that peace. If we're not, we're hoping to establish that peace. Everybody is doing the same thing, either hoping to re-establish it or establish it or maintain it. We're praying for peace. We're hoping for peace. It's a really interesting thing. The P word is a little bit problematic. Uh, prayer. Some some people feel peculiar about prayer. Um, I have a friend who says, uh, as if it posits something necessarily outside, an, uh, another agent that will make it come to pass. I, uh, I know someone who says uh, said. Uh, in a meeting one time, he said, uh, I don't pray, but I hope. So I think that's okay. I think hope is just close enough in the category of prayer. I think about prayer as the wish of the heart, what we hope, close enough. In fact, it's interesting, the the grammar of the metaphrases, um, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may you be peaceful. May you be happy. May your suffering soon end. It's that that particular phrase construction. May it come to pass. Someone told me that uh, grammatically speaking, that is the hortatory subjunctive. So now you know. I think to myself, if people didn't want to say they were praying for peace, they could say, "I am keeping my mind in the hortatory subjunctive." Um, The the uh, new magazine Buddha Dharma just had its second issue is now out. And there's an article called "Do Buddhists Pray?" and uh, they have uh, some people representing all the lineages: Vajrayana, Mahayana, Theravada, Theravada, talking about wow, that's a bad slip, Sylvia. <laughs> talking about prayer and uh, a little bit of a discussion in the beginning, uh, throughout it, about a resistance about using prayer because uh, about the to whom. But I, I, the, 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 the quote I wanted to read to you is uh, from uh, Shohaku Akumura, the Zen, Soto Zen teacher in San Francisco. Our sitting practice is a prayer to give up the self and put our entire being on the ground of interdependent origination. That is the essential, that is an essential meaning of prayer in Buddhism. I like that a lot. And I said, I think we sit here and we return the attention to a balanced place. Every redeeming of the attention from being held in the thrall of a hindrance is a prayer for peace and the answer to the prayer just in the very sitting down the very bringing the attention restoring the attention to sit down with the intention to see clearly which is what we're doing here is to pray for peace when I see clearly and I really see clearly I know that whatever things are, they couldn't be different. Not right now. They could change. I think of myself on all levels as an activist for peace. Out in the world, an activist for peace. I don't find that contradictory. It doesn't mean to do nothing. It means to play an active role in the unfolding of my life and the life of this world. But to do it non-contentiously to do it peacefully, to do it wisely. Things cannot be different this moment because they are the result of circumstances. But if there are things that I can do in this moment that will change the future in a way that's less painful for everybody and for myself and for this planet. If I know that what's happening now cannot be different now, I'm don't struggle now, and then I'm peaceful. I'm not necessarily pleased. This doesn't mean that pain isn't present in the body, in the mind. It means that I'm not in contention. 
often when a thought has come up in the mind and I've gotten into a struggle with it, it goes on for a while. I realize how I've gotten really held hostage by a thought, caught up with it, as if it was something substantial. And it's really just a thought. The thought about something that's not happening now, mostly. Sometimes I look out at a room full of people just like you, and um, I imagine mind bubbles over all the people. Uh, I used to have uh, an elaborated image of that. I used to think of it as uh, maybe like everybody different, like a a soup pot, but actually they were kind of like cauldrons, like uh, like the kind of uh, cauldrons that ki- that children take around on Halloween to collect candy, an old type of cooking pot cauldrons with a lid on them and everybody bubbling away, cooking their own little particular soup, <laughs> individual pots of enlightenment soup. And uh, I would, uh, first of all, think about the bubbles coming out as being... Uh, uh, here's a bubble with uh, a war going on in it. You know, like a like in a cartoon, you can see a bubble that you know is a war bubble because it's got all kinds of uh, oh, maybe explosions going on and um, expletive uh, keys from you know, the keyboard. And so you know, this is a a war is happening here. Or here's another bubble. And it's uh, some sort of uh, erotic bubble filled with uh, erotic kinds of images. And here's a bubble uh, that's kind of foggy. So there's a, a bubble of sleepiness. And here is a bubble of restlessness, a huge volcano, and it's all exploding in there. And here's a bubble maybe full of question marks. So there's a doubt bubble floating around. And I imagine if I could look out and I, if such bubbles existed and if I had psychic vision, I could see bubbles over everybody. Maybe every once in a while there would be a bubble that would be completely empty. That would be, and kind of like balloons floating over people, more like balloons than like bubbles. And like the balloons, as I watched, would float around the room, and then different balloons over everybody's head because we change those balloons, as you know. The first one balloon is here, and then another balloon is there, and then another balloon is there. They kind of float around. You know, I used to think, I once, uh, uh, I, I have a thought about whether we actually do communicate our bubbles a little bit to each other. I had a teacher once when I said, you know, sometimes I'm sitting and I think I'm clear, but I'm not so clear because I start to hear voices and, and a story and I feel like I'm somehow plugged into someone else's telephone connection. Like, other, does that ever happen to you where you hear a piece of a conversation in which you're not either of the speakers and this is happening? And uh, he said, uh, don't worry about that. He said, just don't pay any attention to it. It's probably the person next to you. (laughs) But I actually don't think that, uh, when I think about that, I don't actually think about that it has to be physically proximal. You know, I think it's just a thought that someone thought sometime, somewhere, and it's floating around, like the breath that I'm breathing now. It's a breath that someone breathed somewhere uh, in, in the history of the world, and I'm just breathing it again now, that we just pass it around. I used to also think about uh, that if the soup had exactly the right ingredients, that everybody was cooking their own enlightenment, got all cooked, they'd be free. And that if all the, if the seasoning in the soup was exactly balanced, if all the factors of enlightenment were present in equal amounts that the soup would taste good. I'm thinking about this analogy because I was thinking about it just now as I was thinking about giving this talk and putting it together. Uh, continuing the soup analogy, which we'll see if it's an awful thing to do or not, <laughs> is uh, I've been thinking that we're practicing, I am practicing, so that whatever the soup tastes like, whether it's uh, too hot or too cold or too bitter or too sour or too whatever, I won't drop it. And that maybe I could even eat it and use it for nourishment and maybe would feed compassion in me and help it thrive. I think that's a good analogy. 
So what I really wanted to continue with is what is it that actually changes so that we're better containers for the soup, manage it better. And I want to mention what I first understood as three levels of insight, of seeing more clearly. I'm going to preface it by saying I'm, I'm not sure that I see them as distinct anymore as I did when I first heard them enumerated. So I'll tell you them the way I heard them. But as I was just putting them, putting them together this afternoon, I thought they seem much more closely intertwined now than I imagined. This is insight practice. Uh, mindfulness practice is often called insight practice. The word vipassana, Pali word, is often translated as seeing clearly. We translate it in English. I saw a French translation of uh, that as uh, vision profonde, profound vision, profound seeing. I actually like that better than seeing clearly because I think about the fact that if I took my glasses off and wiped them, I would see more clearly, but I don't know if I would see more profoundly. And I think that really what we hope to do here in this practice of paying attention moment to moment is to see quite profoundly beneath the surface of appearances to what is actually true. And most specifically, in seeing what is actually true, seeing the causes of suffering and in that, the end of suffering. I think that's what we particularly want to see. Sometimes when people say, You know, I've been having a lot of insights, but, you know, they're not really spiritual insights. Um, I really am learning about how I take such poor care of my body, or I have all the stories of how I have uh, been caught in a certain psychological knot all my life. Maybe they don't count. They're not really those spiritual insights about oneness or emptiness or suffering or change. So I I wanted to really preface whatever else I say by the fact that I think that anything that sheds light where there formerly wasn't light, anything that causes us to be, bring out things that were hidden so that we can really understand them more clearly. When they're unseen, they're misunderstood, we see clearly everything that we can relate to in its truth is liberating. So, I don't think it's so helpful to say, I've realized how I've held my body and treated it poorly, I've been ashamed of it, but that's only a body awareness, not a real insight. Everything is real. Or this is only my story. This is my pain about the events of my life. It's a relative to other people's lives. Other people's lives are in, always in comparison, either more difficult or less c- difficult. And it's not the big awareness of dukkha that'll be transformative, it's just my dukkha. I think everything counts. Even if it is, really, the final seeing through the illusion of separateness that is the most liberating goal everything in the service of that clarity, anything that removes the habits of the mind, the dull awareness, is part of that awakening. Really think everything counts. Think about people having, it happens to you, it certainly is happening to me, always the uh, bringing of the attention to the breath or to the body, makes us more intimate with our bodies. We understand them more. We feel them more. They wake up. I, I know that uh, probably you've heard before the, the line from uh, James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Well, what we are trying to do here is move over our attention into the body and feel it live a little closer to ourselves. People will come into an interview and they'll say, I slept a lot the first week. I was so tired. 
I wonder why I didn't take better care of myself, but I have so many demands on my time, and my work needs me, and I really feel I have to give of myself. And then, a little while later, they'll say, you know, it comes to me also that compassion and the practice of the compassion for all beings includes me too. I could take better care of myself. Maybe in the long run that is on behalf of all beings. You know, when that happens, I'm really happy. I rejoice for people when they can do that. Also, by the time when we move into our body, we really become the laboratory for awakening, to discover the deepest truths about everything. The Buddha said, in this very body and the consciousness that arises with it is really the laboratory for the full awakening, everything that we need to know. Breath arises and it passes away all by itself. Clinging is suffering. Imagine if we took a breath and held on to it, or let out the breath and said, whoa, this is really, just the exhale, it's so perfect. But then inhaling happens, and then exhaling happens. Any holding on is suffering. Any manipulation of it really is suffering. And it happens all by itself. No one breathes. Breathing happens. Just like hunger happens and thoughts happen. There's a way in which as we're noticing, noting, and really, I think of noting, sometimes I think about noting as noticing or knowing. I actually like to say mental knowing, including the saying of the word, more than mental noting, because noting sometimes sounds like something that's happening out there. Oh yes, I see that, I see that, and I see that. Over there, like a specimen of something. And actually, I, 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 I'm, I'm really wanting to know it in myself. I think about mental noting, the mental accompaniment, the mental knowing of what is happening and the giving it a name. In the beginnings are the beginnings of endings, sometimes quite close together. Breath begins and ends. Breath begins and ends. Hunger begins. Appetite then begins, fueling the intention to arrive at the dining room while a meal is being served, and then eating happens. And then hunger disappears. And then appetite disappears. And there's no one to whom it all happens. Just the arising and passing away. And the arising and passing awayness of everything in this realm of form. Just it happens. And it, because of this, then that, something else happens. This happens and gives rise to that, which gives rise to that, which gives rise to that. So awareness and insights about the body go from the entire range from how I am with my body to the whole complete spectrum, to the possibility of through this very body recognizing the truths that are fundamental to experience. And the same with to the degree the events of the mind, specifically uh, events of the psyche thoughts that are stories about our lives. Many of them stories that are replays that we have um, replayed many, many times. There are kinds of reasons, I think, psychologically that we replay certain stories many, many times. Often they're not pleasant. Maybe mostly they're not pleasant. Sometimes they're pleasant, but then we play them because we've selected them from our tape library because our experience prior to the playing was unpleasant. And think to yourself, I'm bored, I'll now tell myself that good story of what I did just before I came here, or what I'm going to do just when I get home. But the truth is, 
what we did, which was great, or what we're going to do, which might be, isn't here now. I mean, we're finished. We're just here now, and a little tired from running that whole story again and again. But often, they're disagreeable stories of things that didn't work out, of pain that we had. And the stories all start to play by themselves. We don't often call them up. That particular example is rare. Mostly, they start playing by themselves. And often, the story starts playing by itself, and it precipitates dismay. We think, phooey, I was just feeling good, and now here is that story out of nowhere. Here is this whole story for me to deal with. Sometimes people ask, it's a very, it's a legitimate, wonderful question. They say, sometimes a story presents itself and it's so clear. I see my whole psyche and I understand my whole life and I see all the ways in which my habits were formed by this, that, the other. And it's really a tremendous source of revelation and self-understanding. And in that moment, I could stay with that and really reap the benefits of deep understanding of the way my psyche works. Or I could go back to just being with my breath. What should I do? Should I do A or B? So usually I say yes. Um, And really I say the yes more away from here. I say the yes in life. I say the yes on Wednesday mornings when we're down in class together. I say the yes as... Uh, a way of saying, I think it's important to investigate the, the, the truths of our individual psyches and bring what's unrevealed out into the light. I think here what we are most particularly doing is practicing choosing peace. So here, I don't say that so much. Sometimes I don't even have to say it. Somebody came to see me yesterday and said, I had the most amazing understanding about a very major psychological trauma in my life. It was amazing. And it happened in the early morning and on my way to breakfast, I thought I could think about this more. I could consolidate this understanding. I've been working on it, therapy for a long time. But then it was such a beautiful day and the blossoms are just starting to really come out on the tree. And um, there's that doe standing there with the twin fawns. You see it? It's the most amazing thing. A deer and a baby deer is amazing itself. Two babies is really amazing. So this person said, so I decided, nah, I won't do it. Here I am. Be here now. The blossoms, the fawn, the day. And I would say the same. Somebody said, should I do A or B? Here I would say do B. Choose peace. Practice peace. Because the very ability to say no to our story, or to say no to whatever is presenting itself that really, once again, challenges the mind, ties it in a knot, makes it tense. That ability is thrilling. It's a form of liberation, not to be held hostage by a thought. Whatever it is, it isn't happening now. Right now, I choose peace. There's this denial, there's this repression, I don't think so. I think it's wisdom. Now is the only time, this very moment, is the only moment that I can ever be in this moment. There is no other now than now, ever. That discovery that peace is possible around whatever issue is surfacing, without changing the issue, that it is possible around pain, around disappointment, even around grief. That's the third noble truth of the Buddha, and I think that's the key discovery. That, I think, is what inspires peace. You know, it may be just how I am, but I I find more and more that viscerally knowing, that understanding that everything is empty, sometimes actually grokking that, really quite immediately. Understanding, knowing, seeing that, knowing that things pass, knowing that struggling is suffering. What I really feel most inspires me is experiencing that peace is possible. That that experience 
really inspires my faith that freedom is possible. I think about the Buddha whose freedom was, whose liberation was complete and enduring and it's inspiring to me, really. And I think for myself, um, the experiences of peace, punctuated by getting caught and then getting free again, are enough to inspire me. They inspire a lot of faith. And I thought about insights that are available for not in our personal bodies or our, come not from our personal bodies or our personal psyche stories, but from uh, circumstances and uh, the ripening of condition. I uh, credit the moon actually for a large measure of my understanding of uh, Anicca. I really like the moon. I watch it a lot. I watch it coming and going. Sometimes I've when I've been on a long retreat, you see the waxing and waning of the moon. I really have a sense of my own life coming and going and lives coming and going. How many moons and... I'm actually quite captivated by the moon. My grandchildren know that about me. If I leave someplace and it's a sunset and the moon is in a particularly spectacular way, either a very new sliver that's just setting or a full moon that's just rising, uh, and it's something that they'll miss, I call on the car phone. And if one of them answers, I'll say, it's Bobby, go outside right now. You'll see the moon. And, you know, I actually hope that that's one of the ways that they remember me, that uh, as a person who called from the car and said, rush out right now and see the moon. There's a way of thinking about coming and goingness in a way that... Uh, touches on sadness because things come to an end. And there's a way in which for myself, when I'm balanced enough, it really uh, is so, uh, such a pointer in the direction of, of being present right in this moment. When I was an, a teenager, I memorized um, The Cherry Tree by A. Hausman. Do you know that? Let's see if I can do it. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough and stands along the woodland ride, wearing white for Easter tide. Now of my threescore years and ten, twenty will not come again and take from seventy springs a score. It only leaves me fifty more. And since to look at things in bloom, fifty springs is little room. About the woodland, I will go to see the cherry hung with snow. And when I learned that and memorized it as a teenager, it touched me so much. I couldn't imagine. I wasn't 20 yet. Um, I couldn't imagine coming on to 70. I couldn't imagine. thought about it a lot. I knew that it touched me somehow. Maybe I'd like to think of that as some sort of um, premonition, subliminal understanding of the uh, passage of time and how fast it goes. And as an adult, as I've thought about that poem over the years, as it is spring again, as I look out the window every day and see... Uh, the trees more full of bloom every day. That we are we are so fortunate to be here in February. It's the best month, and see everything regrowing again and getting green. I often think about how many more times I'm going to get to see it. And not not uh, it's not a, so much melancholy thought as a really look at it now, so we really see it. I realized that uh, now that I'm coming up on three score and ten, I think, uh, how did I get here? And how much uh, the, what's happened in between it has become quite a dream, disappeared, really, in a, for me, such a, a sense of the emptiness. Make up this life as if it's solid, and then worry about its ending, but really that there was nothing there at all was really important for me to have that consciousness when I was 13. I think uh, 
it was one of the things, that awareness of how fragile life is and how fleeting, that really pushed me to do this path. Because I, I, I knew somehow I had to manage to be okay with that. It's fleetingness and it's fragility because we don't all get three score and ten. We don't really know ever how many we'll get. could be frightening, that awareness, or actually exhilarating, compelling, compelling to be in this moment. We none of us know. I think I got frightened, actually, somewhere in my 30s about that very issue of the fleetingness and the undependability. When we say to somebody, I'll see you later, you don't actually know. So it's a guess and a hope. And to be able to hold that in the mind and say to people, I love you. Um, my friends and I are mostly saying I love you these days when we, instead of goodbye, signing the emails I love you, saying I love you on the telephone, instead of goodbye, it's a nice way to end a conversation. It's also an awareness that you never know when's the last conversation. I think I wanted to uh, not be frightened by life more than anything else. I know that uh, I know that in my family when we talked about it, my husband and I, he's more philosophical than I, he, he would say, I, I, I'm doing this path because I want to uh, understand life and not me, I just want to be able to stand it. And uh, <coughs> just want to be able to not be frightened by it. Actually, what I really want to be able to do is celebrate it. And I don't want to be frightened by it. I don't want to be frightened by a changing, aging body. And I don't want to be frightened by the habits of my mind that are still painful. That realization at this moment, however it is, is as good as it gets. It's important. This moment, it couldn't be better. The only thing that exists as a factor of suffering or freedom from suffering is the presence of peace around what is. And I think we're all practicing choosing peace. Every time the attention returns to this bare moment just as it is and rests, peace reigns. Peace has been declared. It's a cause for celebration just like at the end of a war. I'll read a uh, poem. Actually, not a poem. This is a, uh, a little uh, prose essay from a book called Whispered Prayers, Portraits and Prose of Tibetans in Exile. Each of the pages in this book is a picture of a Tibetan person in exile in uh, India, men and women, young and old. My name is Ama e Ade, and I am 65 years old. I spent 28 years of my life in eight different Chinese prisons as a political prisoner. My chuba, which is a traditional dress of both Tibetan men and women, became my protection at night in the cold and dampness of my small prison cell. I used my sleeve as a pillow, one side of my chuba as a mattress, and the other side as a blanket, since in many of the prisons there was no other bedding or blankets. Often, when I worked in the prison vegetable gardens that fed the Chinese guards, my chuba became a secret hiding place where I would store and conceal food to bring to the other prisoners who were starving. I was caught and severely punished for this on many occasions. The inscription on the flag you see in this photograph is the Dolma prayer. I attribute my survival to the ceaseless repetition of this prayer. When I was first in prison, I tore a strip of cloth from my tuba and tied 108 knots in it to use as a rosary. It is a tradition for Tibetans to count the number of repetitions of our prayers 
because it helps us to maintain our attention and concentration. The Chinese guards noticed this knotted cloth and beat me. Then I began to say my prayers out loud in my small cell. The guards waited secretly outside, and whenever they heard the sounds of my prayers, they would again beat me. And so I learned to whisper my prayers. When they saw my lips moving, the guards placed duct tape over my mouth. I learned to say my prayers with my fingers and in my mind. When they saw my fingers moving, they beat me and placed duct tape over my fingers to prevent me from counting. And so it was that I learned to pray silently in my mind without making any gestures so that the guards would see nothing at all. every moment of attention to just right now is a prayer for peace that's been answered. Nothing to wait for happens now. I was thinking about the words um, dwell or rest or abide. I think abide is a really good word. Abide in this moment. It is a safe refuge. And the blossoms are starting to come out. And there's a doe grazing with twin fawns right close to the road. And she's not afraid. Let's just sit. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 21, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.